I think this left-right conversation inside the Democratic Party of like, do we need progressives or moderates or centrists? Misses the bigger point that what we need are bold, exciting voices, the kind of candidates who, regardless of their policy positions, can inspire movements and get people excited about the change they can deliver. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Joshua Karp, who's founder and partner at Hone Strategies, his political communications firm. He previously worked as a communications director on a lot of campaigns and was the deputy campaign manager for Andrew Gillum for governor in Florida. He has also recently been the chief communications strategist for John Ossoff for Senate in Georgia and Jamie Harrison in South Carolina and coached them on their key political debates. So we had a lot to talk about his career, his firm, our current politics. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Joshua Karp at Hone Strategies. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Joshua, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. I'm Joshua Karp. I'm the founder and a partner at Hone Strategies. We're a boutique communications consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. I suspect there's more to the biography than that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about where you're from and how you got educated and got into the workforce? I'm f- basically from Norfolk, Virginia, which is a classic like medium-sized American city. But my upbringing was really international. And when people ask me, you know, where are you from? For the longest time, I didn't have a great answer. Um, Because my mom is an immigrant from Germany. She's really lived an amazing American story. She was the first person in her family to graduate from high school and college. Her parents were actually kids during World War II in Germany. And she came to America for an education and met my dad, who's a Jewish guy from Arkansas, of all places. And so I grew up in a house in Norfolk, which is this really southern town with a ton of military presence. My parents were academics and grew up with a bunch of different cultures and languages in the house. And then, you know, you take all that and you go to a normal American elementary school where all the kids have Southern accents and just a really amazing way to grow up because, you know, nowadays I look at, you know, politics through the lens of all the different cultures and textures that we have in this country. And I, you know, was lucky enough to grow up with a bunch of them. Did sort of K through 12 in Norfolk and then um, went to college just up the road at William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. How was that for you? I loved my time at William and Mary. I was not aware when I went to William and Mary that there were all these other people in politics who had graduated from there a few years before. But I had an amazing time. And I don't think it's an accident that William and Mary produces a lot of people in politics because it's a school that I think attracts people who are really civically minded, have an instinct for public service. But also the the school kind of promotes that. You know, the school produces people who want to be really engaged in the world. There's an MBA program at William & Mary, but I don't know anyone who goes to it. And you majored in government. I did. Um, I toyed around with majoring in a bunch of different things. I thought I would be a 
a linguistics major and maybe work in like foreign policy or something. And I studied foreign languages, a bunch of them, but I kept getting pulled into politics. Why do you think? I feel like there's something immediately practical about working in politics. You know, when I was a sophomore in college, I found out that this senior at the school was running for local city council in Williamsburg, Virginia. Now, you've got to understand Williamsburg, Virginia is a town of like 12,000 people. Half of them are college students. So the theory was that we could get laws changed in the city to benefit students, you know, longer hours at the bars, that kind of thing. And I was just immediately enthralled by this idea that like all we had to do was get like a thousand college kids to show up on a random Tuesday in May and we could change some laws like we could make our lives practically better. It was just this amazing discovery. And I'd always been interested in like what was going on in the world, but it was that local politics that first pulled me in. How'd that go? So he lost horribly, (laughs) but he was also, I, I mean, he would tell you he was a terrible candidate. He was doing it for all the right reasons, but, you know, being a candidate is this like, you know, really mystical thing. And some people have got it and some people don't. Two years later, um, we were actually able to elect a student to the city council. So that election was sort of the training wheels for me. And then a couple years later, we were all older and wiser at the ripe old age of 21, 22. And we identified a student, recruited him, who really wanted to live in Williamsburg and loved the town and just had a sort of a commanding presence and a really great Southern accent. And we, you know, were able to convince him that, you know, it would be great for him to run for city council. And he actually not only won that election with 1,500 votes, almost all of them from the college, but he won re-election four years later with a thousand votes and all of them came from the town. They fell in love with him too. Hmm. That's, that's a good story. How did you sort of enter the world of being a staffer on campaigns and work in a bunch of races? Well, so during college, I fell in love with this. And after that, I knew immediately this is what I wanted to do. And being in Virginia, there's elections every single year. So it's an amazing proving ground because you can graduate from college in May and immediately find your way onto a race. And so I immediately found myself in the state legislative races. And I worked for a couple years in Virginia state legislative politics. Um, I worked for State Senator John Miller, who's now deceased, but, you know, was one of those sort of workaday public servants who would work at a nonprofit from nine to five, nine months out of the year. And then the balance he would spend in Richmond, and he had one issue, it was public education and improving third grade reading levels. And he would go toil away on this one issue, get a couple bills passed every year. And the people who he represented in Portsmouth knew him by his first name everywhere. And just the kind of like really amazing, um, you know, local public servant And that was one of my first races. And then I worked in the state legislature. I ran communications for the state Senate for a couple sessions. And this was when the legislature was dominated by Republicans and Democrats didn't have a majority. And, you know, every bill was this just contentious fight. But what's cool about working in local politics is you're so much closer to the politicians There's always all these people who want to, you know, they graduate from college and immediately want to go to D.C. But you can't go into Nancy Pelosi's office and like tell her what you think. But I got to work for two years directly with the Democratic leadership. And right out of college, I had the opportunity to work for Donald McEachin, who at that time was the Senate caucus chairman, and work for Dick Saslaw, um, who was and still is the leader in the state Senate. And, you know, these are really amazing opportunities if you're willing to kind of set your sights a little lower than, you know, the rat race in D.C. Why were you thinking communications and not, say, running for office yourself or one of the many other routes into politics that are out there? I came into the world of campaign comms in a really roundabout way. 
I know you're an old tech guy and you know you'll appreciate this. I was a huge nerd in high school and college. I taught myself how to code in middle school and I was learning how to do JavaScript and PHP and I learned Ruby when that was the the cool new programming language and I was making websites for local campaigns in college, and that was my first entry into those city council campaigns. And I started realizing that I enjoyed the coding. I enjoyed like solving technical problems. But what I really loved was writing the content for those websites and writing the material for the graphics and the social media. And that was a sort of awakening for me that the technology and the engineering was really just in service of a message. And I sort of fell more and more in love with the message. And you had an opportunity to actually switch states at a certain point and go to Florida? Yeah. After a couple cycles in Virginia, you know, like a lot of young people, I just want to spread my wings and try something else. And I applied everywhere. And I happened to get a really amazing job with Congresswoman Lois Frankel. At that time, she was the mayor of West Palm Beach. And Lois is always going to be a mayor in my mind. She's this um, incredibly tough, crusty Florida politician who would really be at home in the rough and tumble of New York City. And when she was the mayor of West Palm Beach, they built huge buildings and tore down old buildings and just accomplished huge things. And working for Lois was a wild ride. And she taught me a lot. Um, But it also was an entry into Florida politics and having a foothold into Florida. Then my next several jobs were all, you know, working in communications and successively better jobs in Florida. What were those jobs? So I ran communications for the state Democratic Party, which at the time was run really well by Scott Arsenault. The FDP was a real hub for Democrats at the time in Florida. And now things are a little more diffuse and the party has a narrower focus. But I got to kind of play comms consultant to a bunch of different candidates for state house, for state Senate. And then I got to have a really big role in Governor Charlie Crist's campaign in 2014, where I ran a big part of his communications and got to work directly with Charlie, which was you know the first time I had worked with a politician of his stature before and done a statewide campaign. What'd you make of him? You know, Charlie is one of the most fascinating figures in American politics in my book. He's this amazing retail politician, someone who just has a gift for listening and connecting with people. He's incredibly genuine and warm in person. And Florida, of course, is the opposite of that. Florida is not a retail politics state. Florida is a state where millions of dollars in TV ads really decide elections. And so Working for Charlie is the study in contradictions where you're taking these amazing retail gifts and trying to take them statewide and trying to reach as many people with them. So from a communications perspective, there's almost no one you'd rather work for because he's really gifted. But the challenge is, is just showing this huge state those talents. He's one of those really well-known party switchers. Did you guys discuss that? What what did you think of that background and where his heart really lay in the end? There's a lot of punditry about this because he's probably the most prominent politician to switch parties in a long time. But what I'll say is that Charlie's departure from the Republican Party was followed a decade later by hundreds of elected and former elected Republicans abandoning the party because of Trump. And in many ways, Charlie was driven out of the Republican Party by the same forces that elected Donald Trump, this really intense, uh, divisive brand of conservative politics that was first found in the Tea Party that led Mitch McConnell to say that his only goal was to deny Barack Obama a second term. And that like hard, bitter edge in the Republican Party has just been getting stronger for years. So Charlie was in many ways a victim of that because he's a unifier. He's someone who genuinely believes in bipartisanship and working together. He was always a moderate. He was a moderate Republican. And now he's a very loyal three-term Democratic member of Congress. So what was next for you? 
So then I ran communications for the Senate campaign in Florida. That was Patrick Murphy's fight against Marco Rubio. And, you know, that was a really interesting experience because that was my first time working for a candidate who was basically also in my generation. You know, Patrick was in his 30s and I was in my late 20s. And you have to run a different kind of campaign when the candidate has that kind of a profile. What does that mean to run communications for a Senate campaign? What do you end up really doing? Often you wind up writing fewer press releases than you would when you were further down the totem pole, but you're helping to coach the candidate every day. And you're also kind of guiding a process. I often say that really good comms directors, they don't spin reporters for a living or write content for a living. They're creating the space for communications to happen. Campaigns are big, raucous things. You've got consulting teams, like a pollster and a TV ad maker and a mail vendor. You've, you know, got lots of maybe hangers on people who are friends of the candidate or family members. You have lots of different people associated with campaigns. There's nothing else like them. You'd never run a business this way, that's for sure. And someone has to corral all of that into a coherent plan and a message. And that's usually the collaboration between a good campaign manager and a good communications director. Who was the campaign manager on that? That was Josh Wolf, who's now at AL Media. I know, Josh. How, how was it to work with him? Terrible. Just one of the worst known. Josh is an excellent manager. And one of the things that makes Josh a good manager is he understands that it's very important to hire a really great team, give them the guidance and correction they might need from time to time, but also let people run and give people the room to excel. So if I were going to ask Josh about you, what do you think he would say? Probably would recommend me for the podcast. what else do you think you would say about you as a team member that's a really good question no one's ever asked me a question like that before i have no idea i really don't we should call him up well you know a lot of times when i'm hiring people for jobs that's the kind of question i would ask and i would often get a more adept answer from someone in comm so why don't you take another swing at it that's fair i feel like he would say that I'm very good at my job. I'm, I'm struggling with this one. Oh, are you trying to be too honest or, uh, or, is it, or modest or? <laughs> I, don't know, I just don't know. We're just, I, I think the issue is, is we're such good friends. I just don't know. Um, I don't know what he would say. Or maybe the real answer is like a little too self aggrandizing. Maybe. I mean, I think he would say we had a great time working together on that campaign. And that like one of the, nice things about both of us being political consultants now is that we get to continue to work together on a bunch of different races. I've really not had a career in campaigns. I've had a bit of a career for a while in campaign technology, and I worked on one presidential. But my sense is that there is a lot of camaraderie and a lot of making friends through trial by fire that you see in lots of organizations that are under pressure and people are working hard. Is that your experience? I feel like campaigns are this really odd blend of incredibly expensive startups. Well, let me back up. I keep messing up. I don't know. I apologize. I don't think you're messing up. I think a lot of times an interview like this is best when there isn't a prepared answer. You know how politicians become. They... They have well-worn tracks in what they say. They really do. And I'm not very good at talking about myself. It, it's, I think it's super hard. It's the least, the thing I least like to talk about in general. <laughs> I mean, well, that's why you're the one asking the questions. It is certainly why I am. And every once in a while, when I slip into talking about myself, a lot of times I edit that out. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> well, ask your question again and I'll do, I'll do a better job this time. Tell me about how, how like, your experience on campaigns socially has affected you. Like you said, you made a friend out of your campaign manager. What's your experience across all of these campaigns you've done in terms of bonding and human relationships? Frankly, I think it's the most important part, right? You know, a lot of people think that campaign communications is about the reporters you know and the impressive people you've worked for. But 
the way up in politics is to have really great friendships and to work really hard and to be a great colleague, someone who people want to keep working with down the road. The relationships are the most important thing about campaigns. And, you know, I can count like dozens of friends from every campaign I've done. And I did campaigns for 10 years in a row. And first of all, no one should ever do campaigns 10 years in a row. That's way too long to do it. It's incredibly exhausting. A lot of people I've talked to have done that or more. I mean, it's only five cycles, right? Right. And part of why I'm able to have a successful business now is because during those five cycles, I met people who I really enjoyed working with and who liked working with me. And that's really fortunate. How much is the winning or losing uh, a big part of how you kind of look back on a campaign? I don't remember Patrick Murphy winning that race. How do you look at it? with that lens. The analog to me is sort of sports teams where, you know, you're all in it together, you compete and you finish in seventh place in the division or you win the division. You get judged a lot by, in politics, by that W or L. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you can look at people's careers and, the folks who have been on winning campaigns, their career skyrockets. And, but that being said, there's no shame in losing because most campaigns lose. I mean, if you just run the numbers, if you include primary campaigns, most people who put their name on a ballot aren't going to win, but they all need good help. And the work is really interesting. And especially if you're just starting out, you know, the work's really qualifying, if you're just, you know, a, a young campaign manager or a young communications director or something on a small campaign, you learn probably even more by losing than by winning, because when you lose, you spend a lot of time soul searching and analyzing what you could have done better. And, you know, we make a really big deal out of campaigns, especially in America, where, you know, we we spend billions of dollars on political campaigns. In other countries, they don't do this. This is crazy in other countries, what we do here. And sometimes I think we overestimate how much a campaign can change the tide of history. Sometimes campaigns can have a huge impact, but often campaigns have a difference at the margin and they're just not making that 10 point swing happen. Right. And I think we can point to, for example, elections like in Georgia, where I absolutely believe the incredible amount of effort poured into Georgia in 2020 made a difference, a decisive difference. But Georgia is also rapidly changing demographically. And as more and more people move to Georgia and as attitudes in Georgia shift, those changes are also something underlying in the electorate. Campaigns can take advantage of it. Campaigns can fail to take advantage of it. But at the same time, I think everyone kind of recognizes your career is not connected to winning every race. I feel like the campaign probably demonstrably matters more in a primary than in the general with how polarized we are and how few people you can move. Does that ring true to you? Absolutely. Because campaigns are often about mobilization. It's really hard to persuade someone to change their mind. But if their mind isn't made up, which it often isn't in a primary, you know, primaries are often these low information elections where none of the candidates are particularly well known. And if you simply get the word out about your candidate in a better way than the opponents, you might win simply because people really like to vote for candidates whose names they know. I was thinking more of like the candidates, say like in a presidential in Iowa, who often it's the skilled retail campaigner who moves up really far. I might differ with you a little bit here. I think that is sometimes true, especially in smaller states. But as our politics has become so nationalized and as social media and cable news have really grabbed a hold of the presidential campaign cycle in a pretty, I think, negative and destructive way, I think often you see candidates struggle to use retail techniques to connect. Just think about like the campaigning, I don't know what we're calling retail, but the campaigning of Obama in Iowa or Buttigieg or 
some of these people who just notably good speakers, they do well. I think that's true. No, absolutely. You you have to have really great campaign shops to compete at that level. And what's you know really interesting about places like Iowa, they know it's the first primary and they feel this obligation to put candidates through their paces. American Bridge, you spent a little bit of time there. Um, what, what's your, what'd you take away about their, their place in the ecosystem and what, what you learned and what your role was? Yeah, I was the communications director for U.S. Senate races at American Bridge, which is an incredibly fun job, probably the most purely fun job I've ever had. Because what you do is you work with and help guide a team of opposition researchers. And your work is to pitch that opposition research in the media and find ways of building narratives and stories about Republican Senate candidates. And Washington, D.C. runs on news about the U.S. Senate, as we've seen from the past year and all the negotiations on the Hill. You know, everything matters, but the U.S. Senate is always the biggest story in town. And you have enormous reach when you have opposition research on a, you know, vulnerable incumbent Republican senator. Um, Everyone wants a piece of that. And it's a really exciting, fun job. Now, Bridge has this really unique place in the ecosystem where on the Republican side, you have conservative media outlets that just churn negative stories about Democrats all day long. You know, you've got the Daily Wire and the Caller and Breitbart and others that all they do is work to hurt Democrats and attack Democrats all day. And they do that independently. The Democrats don't have anything like that. On our side, there have been some attempts to build that, and some of those are are better than others. And that's really important work. But we have not seen an appetite, frankly, among progressives for pure like red meat chum for the progressive base. That's not something Democrats seem to be interested in. There's no market for that, really. I've seen a lot of market for it in the sort of Occupy Democrats, uh, what used to be Share Blue um, you know, just a lot of the internet groups that, but you're right in the sense that they tend to be smaller and less advanced than some of the conservative ecosystem. That's a really good point because those are really important projects. They do, I think, intersect with campaign politics a little less than the Republicans, where when the Republicans want to start laying down a negative narrative in a U.S. Senate race or a governor's race, they have really well-developed... They all come in together, sort of. Right. And you have all these different news websites that have actual right-wing reporters working for them, reporting out negative stories on Democratic candidates. There's nothing like that specifically on the Democratic side. Although you're right that like the Trump era, I think, has been really helpful to building some of that. I mean, look at Crooked Media, right? Yeah. Or Daily Coast has been around forever. It's kind of a forum for that. Sometimes I think we might overestimate the other side on that, but No, that bias is almost certainly true. But the place that American Bridge holds in the ecosystem is really important because of this difference between the two sides, where American Bridge is the only group whose primary job is to hold Republicans accountable in the media. And now Bridge, since I've left, they have branched out and they, you know, they now air ads and run independent expenditures. And that's also you know, really important. Um, but they're still the only place in the ecosystem where, you know, if you are a Republican running for office, you better be worried when American Bridge starts issuing FOIAs and looking into your past. If it was such a fun job, why'd you leave and where'd you go to? Um Well, so I had known um, Andrew Gillum for years. He was the young city councilman when I was um, a young uh, political staffer working in Tallahassee, Florida. And when he became the Democratic nominee for Florida governor in 2018, I called his team immediately to congratulate him. And I was expecting to hear, yeah, 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 we're busy. We got to go win this election. Instead, they invited me to come down and help. And I thought about it for about four minutes, talked it over with my wife and just immediately felt like I had to go do it. 
and I was the deputy campaign manager for the general election, got to oversee basically all outgoing messaging from the campaign, which was, you know, a lot of responsibility and a ton of people to manage, but also just felt like a ton of weight on my shoulders because we could have actually elected one of the, you know, first black governors in the South in a generation. Gillum and Stacey Abrams were running in neighboring states at the same time, and it just really felt like the weight of history was on us. Some people viewed that as a test of the can nominating a progressive favorite gin up enough positive turnout to win in a close state like that. We could have nominated a white woman, more moderate. Some people would argue that would have won it. These are a lot of times impossible to prove in the specific, but some of the political science might lean that way. Who who knows, right? What was your view about like his fit for the state at that time in that election? I think Florida is a really, really hard state for us to win right now. And it takes really amazing, inspiring candidates to make it possible. Florida is certainly uh, slightly resistant to those national wave elections. You know, in 2006, there was a wave election in the House that barely reached Florida. And in 2018, there was another wave election to the U.S. House and Senate that really didn't reach Florida in a way that's really heartbreaking and disappointing. But I think the lesson is that we need candidates who are able to mobilize and really inspire people. And I think this left-right conversation inside the Democratic Party of like, do we need progressives or moderates or centrists, misses the bigger point that what we need are bold, exciting voices. The kind of candidates who, regardless of their policy positions, can inspire movements and get people excited about the change they can deliver. I think that's what's important. And, you know, Andrew um, is a supporter of Medicare for All. I don't think that's the reason why he lost. I think that if it had been in Ron DeSantis's self-interest to say that Andrew Gillum was in favor of Medicare for All, the policy position wouldn't have mattered. You know, the legal case laws is very clear. Candidate ads are almost impossible to remove these days from TV, even if they are blatant lies. And so these days, a lot of Republican ads, they just say that Democrats support whatever thing is popular on Fox News at the moment, regardless of what Democrats really believe. You see moderate Democrats get accused of being too close to insert boogeyman here all the time. And I don't think that was a huge factor for Gillum's loss. And I think you see that, you know, Bill Nelson also lost by just a little less. And one of the reasons for that, and I think this is, you know, a lesson for all of us, kind of a sad lesson is that difference of 20,000 votes between Nelson, who lost by 10,000 votes, and Gillum, who lost by 30,000. We're talking fractions of a percentage point here. The difference there were white voters in rural Florida who just seemingly couldn't quite get all the way to voting for Andrew Gillum, but were, were willing to vote for Bill Nelson. When you lose by that little, there's a million reasons, but I don't think partisanship was part of it. After the election, Gillum had a bit of a fall publicly. What's your sense of like, does he have a political future? What do you hope for him? Well, you know, I really wish him all the best. And, you know, I still talk to him from time to time. You know, he is an amazing, not just an amazing political talent, but he is a really great dad and a good husband trying to do better. And, you know, he has obviously, like, really suffered. And I think he's been very honest about the fact that losing that governor's race was psychologically really devastating. And I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And I think sometimes that, you know, as a majority white society, we sometimes hoist enormous expectations onto people like Andrew Gillum. And when someone like Andrew, who has met every obstacle ever put in front of him, surmounted every obstacle, and then there's one he couldn't quite do, I mean, that heartbreak is something that 
can really be hard for someone to overcome. And so I, you know, really wish him all the best. And, you know, I don't know what he wants for the future, but he's got a really great podcast about some of these exact issues. So if some of this sounds interesting, folks should check that out. On the flip side, when I talk to people in Florida now, they are, I would say Democrats, sort of terrified of DeSantis, of the ability he's had to dominate the state, his potential to do the same nationally. Um, when I see him, I'm not a fan. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I mean, just seems like an awful dude in a lot of ways, but um, pretty relentless. How do you see him from your long experience in Florida politics? One of the first lessons about Florida governor's races is that Florida is a really big, diverse state where the governor isn't a constant presence in most people's thoughts. There are a lot of smaller states where people really know and have a sense of who the governor is. Most Floridians don't have a strong sense of DeSantis. They didn't have a strong sense of Rick Scott. The Florida governor is way up in Tallahassee. He's not a part of most people's daily existence. Part of the explanation of DeSantis's sort of, you know, low 50s approval rating is that most people in Florida generally feel like Joe Biden's economy is going okay. And they generally feel that things are sort of headed in a better direction with COVID. And executives in Florida benefit from that sort of general sense that things are acceptable right now. Um, a lot of DeSantis's kind of bullying and boorish behavior doesn't really penetrate. I think that if DeSantis tries to take this act on the national stage, where just the other day he, you know, refused to condemn neo-Nazis in Orlando, and just yesterday he told Joe Rogan publicly that he shouldn't apologize for having said the N-word, I think if he tries to take that kind of really divisive act on, for example, the 2024 circuit, it's going to fall flat like a sack of potatoes. We'll see. That's didn't fall that flat from Biden's predecessor. Well, I think the, what, what Trump was able to do was a really unique mixture of racism and comedy. That, and a lot of people don't, I think, want to see the comedy in Trump. But as someone who like, you know, I, I really try to study the communications of these Republicans and the comedy that Trump brings. He's an entertainer. He is. He's an entertainer. And he's really funny if you take off an ideological hat and you try to like put yourself in the shoes of the people who want to go to his events. They go because it's fun. And some of his jokes are horribly offensive and reveal really devastating things about his character. Um, but they're also funny to a lot of people. There's nothing funny about Ron DeSantis. He is a bully and a grind. And there's, you know, a lot of stories floating around Florida of people who've met with him. And, you know, there's no charm there that would help him on a national stage. So I'm not saying his ideas aren't dangerous. I'm just saying I think he's both a bully and incredibly divisive and very dangerous, but also actually more boring than maybe people think. Do you think we have any hope in the statewides in Florida in 2022? It's on Democrats to prove it. Um, you know, it's been a decade since we've won Florida at the presidential level. Um, so Democrats have a lot of proving to do. But in 2018, we almost won the U.S. Senate race. When Bill Nelson lost by 10,000 votes, by literally a tenth of a point, you know that it's possible and what we've got in uh, Congresswoman Val Demings is a former police chief, a tough-as-nails congresswoman who is immune to the typical Republican bullshit. She's immune to it. And you can't call someone with her resume and experience someone who wants to defund the police or a socialist. Voters just don't buy it. And so I really think we've got a shot. Even in a, a bad midterm, if we couldn't win in a good midterm? Well, I think there's the difference between midterms and then there's the difference between tactics, right? 
And I think, you know, Florida Democrats keep innovating and keep finding new ways to, you know, reach voters, new ways to appeal to Hispanic voters where we really need to improve our numbers. But again, it's on us to prove that we know how to do it. And I think so far, you've seen Val Demings out fundraise Marco Rubio three quarters in a row. And you see Marco Rubio trying to suggest on Twitter that Val Demings is a socialist, that she is in favor of defunding the police. And I'm sorry, the lady wore a bulletproof vest for 27 years. You're not going to persuade people of that kind of thing. So I think for starters, we're definitely benefited by Rubio running a terrible campaign. And so, yeah, no, we've got a great chance. As you've mentioned at the beginning, you've started your own shop, which is often the path of people who've built up an expertise in working on campaigns to hire themselves out as a consultant or build a firm around that expertise. How's that going? Surprisingly well. Um, I never sought out to be an entrepreneur or to uh, build a startup. My passion is obviously for political communications and messaging. After the 2018 cycle, I was exhausted. My wife and I were expecting our first baby. I knew I wasn't going to go join one of the presidential campaigns, but I also didn't feel like I was ready to hang up my spurs and go work doing corporate communications at a large firm. And those seem to be the paths ahead of me. And having done a number of statewides, that was what my friends and peers were doing was either going to do comms for, you know, the big banks or going to try to work on one of the presidential campaigns. And I took a couple contracts to bide my time, see what options opened up. And I found that I really loved working for myself, keeping my clients happy and offering them good advice. And I quickly realized that unlike a lot of people who consult, I didn't want to just be an advice giver. I wanted to keep my hands dirty and like roll up my sleeves and really engage with my clients. And that meant I had to grow the business. You can't really do campaign style work for more than a small handful of of campaigns or, or nonprofits. We have six people now at Hone Strategies, which is, you know, more people than I ever thought would work for my small business, but we're still growing. We're definitely not done hiring for the cycle. So who are you working for and what are you doing? Um, so last cycle, I worked primarily um, for uh, Senator John Ossoff and now DNC chair Jamie Harrison and led the communication strategies for both of those campaigns from before they launched through the end and still keep in touch with them and their teams. Um, and then also took on a number of congressional races, um, a couple nonprofits that needed help and provided both the overall strategic guidance, thinking about the major communications opportunities, try to, you know, sort of use the fact that I've been doing this for a little while to see around some of the corners and help campaigns understand what are the challenges and opportunities that you'll face, not tomorrow, but next month. And in addition to that, you know, roll up your sleeves and really dig into the work. If there's a particularly important speech that needs writing, we get into it and we do it. Um, if there's a really tough press release, maybe announcing something painful or difficult or great news that's really important to get right, we take that on. We work incredibly closely, not just with candidates, but with campaign teams. Um, one of the best parts of working on a campaign is it's not really about you. You get to kind of lose yourself in a really great team, hopefully. And we still take that approach with our clients. So now this year, we work for nine different campaigns. Six of them are statewide campaigns around the country. And, you know, we do everything from writing important speeches to finding the right opportunity to give a really important announcement and identifying the right way, be it a reporter or an interview or a cable news hit or an op-ed. What's the right way to get your message out there? We assess all of those different things. Politics and campaigning 
Some people will say it's more art than science. Others are on the science side, I guess. <laughs> I feel like I can recognize a thoughtful, strategic campaign compared to one that's maybe made bad choices or got stuck on a theme that isn't working and can't change or one that kind of flips from thing to thing without having a plan. Sometimes you see a campaign where they had a real problem. They spent the beginning executing a plan to like inoculate themselves against some particular attack. You just see a well-run campaign. The challenge I would have would be how to be sure about the advice I was given, right? It seems like there's a lot of hard calls. There's a lot of different directions. There's a lot of degrees of boldness. How do you find the confidence to give advice strongly when things are so unsure? Well, I think it's also important to acknowledge that, you know, sometimes the most confident person in the room isn't the person with the best advice. And part of the job of a good leader on any team, and, you know, we are not the leader of any team, but we are leaders on all of our campaigns. Part of the job of good leaders is to make sure that it's not just you doing all the talking, but you're really actively listening and trying to be inclusive and bring voices that might not um, speak up as loudly as yours into the conversation. But it's a really, it's a great question because it's a really tough problem. Politics is more art than science. And even the folks who talk about the science of it, I think, are you know, well aware that when the rubber hits the road, we're dealing with really chaotic human systems. A lot of the work we do at Hone is taking some of the science and the art, for example, the findings of polling and focus groups, but also taking the scripts from TV ads and turning that into a entire communications program for a campaign. Because it's one thing to have the findings of a poll. And the poll might tell you the right way to position a candidate is X, Y, Z. But how do you then turn that into a stump speech and events that will genuinely excite your audience? And how do you convince TV cameras that like the story they need to cover is the thing that was in the poll? That's really hard, and it takes a team to figure out all the different opportunities and angles. And if I've learned a couple things over you know, the last 10 years of doing this, it's that you have to not come to the conversation with every answer, but be the person who can help a team find the answers together. And there's a lot of power in, you know, being that voice on a team. At our best, that's our voice. I don't know that we always succeed. If I have a, a worry or a pet peeve about a midterm election when we have the president, I've mentioned this on a, a different uh, interview recently, but it's still with me. It's Democrats running away from the, their president in their own narrowly conceived self-interest. How do you contend with that problem with the bunch of campaigns you're dealing with when in some states, you know, Biden's unpopular and there's that temptation to separate yourself and be independent and even talk him down. I think that this goes back to our conversation about liberal versus moderate and bold versus boring, because there are a lot of candidates out there and a lot of you know, really smart political consultants and strategists out there who want to make candidates moderate enough to be acceptable to the widest swath of voters. And that can often include positioning a candidate to reject the incumbent president if that president is of your own party. And look, there's certainly like really tough territory out there where the right candidate can win even if, you know, the president of the same parties in office and really hated, you know, Larry Hogan is currently governor of Maryland, even though Marylanders really hate Donald Trump and Joe Manchin is a Senator from West Virginia. So, I mean, you get those kinds of politicians, 
But I would say the overwhelming majority of the time, some of the caution is sort of overrated. And you see candidates sometimes kind of twist themselves in knots trying to avoid a particular, you know, political endorsement or to avoid a particular political event, even an event with the president. If that's the top testing negative hit in a poll against you, you better believe the other side's coming at you with it no matter what. One of the things that I think is interesting about your career is the fact that you've been involved in debate preparations with a number of candidates. What are your theories about what makes for a good debate in a race? Well, I think we should start by stipulating that most political debates are really bad. Um, Most candidates are not good at this format. It's a really weird thing to walk into a TV studio and be told by a bunch of local TV reporters who themselves have almost no experience running good debates that you have 60 seconds or 90 seconds to answer a question and then the other guy goes and has to answer the same question and attacks you and maybe you get a chance to respond maybe you don't do you raise your hand or not do you insist on responding it's a weird format especially in an era when on social media this stuff just gets chopped up into a bunch of little pieces and one-liners or sharp reposts get turned into viral moments but no one is evaluating the totality of your performance anymore And the news media the next day doesn't even cover the sharp exchanges. The headline will just always be candidates exchange barbs, which is the worst headline in political journalism. And I guarantee you it will appear in thousands of news stories this fall and teach voters nothing about candidates. And so if we stipulate to the idea that like political debates are just kind of silly, we can see that maybe there's a little bit of opportunity in in them. If you are an underdog looking for attention, there is no better way to make your case than to tee up powerful moments of contrast and debates. Nothing is more mobilizing to your supporters and nothing is more interesting to social media, potential grassroots donors and the press. But at the same time, if you're the overdog in a race, and you go on the debate stage, probably the only thing you can do is mess up. And you have to withstand the other person trying to make those moments for themselves. Exactly. Political debates are the ultimate art, not science of politics. But yeah, over the years, I mean, I've coached candidates for debates every election cycle since 2012 and hopefully gotten better over the years. And one of the things that makes some candidates just incredibly good at this is not natural talent because it's like no one's going to be good at that from the beginning. That's ridiculous. But there are candidates who study really hard are willing to suspend their own beliefs about what debates should be. Lawyers are often really bad at this because you get tons of training in law school and in courtrooms on how to debate. And none of that applies to the silliness of a political debate. Um, But if you're willing to sort of put your preconceived notions aside as a candidate and study really hard and work really hard with a coach who understands how to pivot out of bad questions and, you know, make a bad question into a good one and how to like, you know, I think another important skill is candidates who can really listen to the opponent. Sometimes in an interview, um, you know, in an interview setting or in a debate, politicians get so wrapped up in what they're going to say next, they forget to listen to what their opponent or the interviewer is even saying which is just sort of a nervous tick that some people have. But if you can do some of those things right, um, and particularly the work part on the front end, you can really succeed. Look at uh, Jamie Harrison's debates against Lindsey Graham, where Lindsey Graham clearly did not prepare and showed up with a page of notes and read his notes to the debate audience. This was last cycle in South Carolina. You know, Jamie Harrison brought the house down online And that first debate with Lindsey Graham, he raised a million dollars. And it's because Jamie had studied really hard and worked really hard and put in the work and the elbow grease to learn the issues and understand how to dominate that format. 
was he your favorite of the people that you've coached in that regard or who was? Well, that's an incredibly dangerous question that I should definitely not answer. I, I can never pick favorites. Is there a moment that you will first remember among the debates? Yeah. A couple big moments stand out. You know, Andrew Gillum looking at Ron DeSantis and saying, I'm not saying you're a racist. I'm saying the racists think you're racist. Was that prepared? It was. That was um, that was a line that um, actually a, a pastor a couple weeks before the debate had told some of us who were who were with Andrew that um, a similar version of that line, and it um, and it came back up in prep. Yeah, and, and you were going to say another one. I think that for a lot of people who followed the elections in Georgia in 2020 closely, the moment. This was, by the way, in the general election, not the runoff, which caught which you know caught the whole world by storm. But in the general election, when not everyone had their focus on Georgia, not everyone thought that Ossoff and Warnock could pull it off. Um, you know, Ossoff very calmly, you know, looks at David Perdue and says, "Senator, you're attacking the health care of the people you represent." And he went on to give sort of a longer answer. And it was this this very calm, methodical takedown of everything Purdue had just said. Senator Purdue studied really hard for the debates. You could tell he had also worked hard, but he had memorized. And sometimes memorizing, if that's what you can do, it's better than not studying. But what makes Senator Ossoff so remarkable is he had studied really hard, but he came up with that on the moment. And 30 million people watched that clip over the following week on social media. It was played nonstop on MSNBC. And he came up with it in the moment because he had studied and learned so well that he was able to come up with the right thing to say in the moment. And he was able to really hear what David Perdue had to say, too. And just an unbelievable moment. What did you think of Trump as a debater? Well, Trump wasn't there to debate. Trump was there to have a, a backyard brawl. And it was clearly a, a prepped tactic by him and his team to keep Biden off balance and try to maybe trigger a quote unquote senior moment from Biden. Biden, of course, is sharp. And, you know, while, you know, he has a stutter, he wasn't caught flat footed at all by Trump's antics. In fact, I think he pretty effectively mocked Trump and gave Trump some of his own medicine. But no, Trump came in with a plan, but his plan wasn't to play chess. His plan was to eat the pieces and spit them at Joe Biden. Well, is there a question I haven't asked you that you would like to answer? No, you've been incredibly thorough. This has been fun. Somehow thorough is my least favorite um, adjective applied to my uh, interview style, but I think that's what I tried to be in this case. So we'll go with that. There's nothing else you would like to convey? We were just talking about Trump. And like one thing that I think people, you know, if he runs again, one thing that I would just sort of, you know, maybe leave people thinking about is Trump's formidable because he's likable. And as we think about how to take him down, to me, like, that's maybe one of the starting places if he were to run again, is even in that debate format, you know, millions of people thought that his debate against Joe Biden thought he won. And that should really spook us. And as Democrats, I think we, you know, could do to be a little more empathetic with the people who think he's really funny and interesting and warm, because obviously that's not how I see him at all. And I don't know anyone who sees him that way. But the fact that a lot of us don't know anyone like that, that should bother us, not make us feel good. So I don't know, parting thought on Trump. I think there's something to that. I'm able to see that side of him despite general loathing. I can pick it up. And I worry about many of my friends who just will say, Ugh, I, I can't even see anything positive about the guy, right? They're missing something. If you can't put yourself in the other side's shoes, you're going to miss a lot. It might feel good in the moment, but I feel like we're going to win more campaigns if we're more empathetic. Do you think you want to run a consulting business for the foreseeable future? Is this like a pretty good fit for you in your life, as far as you can tell? 
I love it. And I certainly hope that Hone has many more successful cycles. You know, last cycle was our first one. We're growing really fast. We've got a, a bunch of clients that we're really excited about now. And hopefully that keeps going. But I will say the other side of that is I hope we have more competition because I think the market for communication strategy and guidance and know-how on these big races is only growing. You know, more and more campaigns are really interested in what we have to offer. And I think there's a lot of smart comms people out there who could also hang a shingle, come up with a logo and, you know, go out and help Democrats win. And, you know, the only options aren't corporate consulting and trying to be one of a very few select people who climb the greasy ladder all the way to the top. There's a ton of fun and impact to be had continuing to work on campaigns past your sell by date on the campaign trail. I think I will leave it at that. That was Joshua Karp. Joshua is at hone-strategies.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.